0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm your co-host, Carolyn Ford. Today, Eric and I talked to Reuters investigative reporter Joseph Men. Joseph is one of the longest-serving and most respected mainstream journalists in cybersecurity. He's won three Best in Business awards from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers and been a finalist for three Gerald Loeb Awards. Today, Eric and I talked to him about his latest book, Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World, which offers keen insight into hacker culture and an abbreviated history of cybersecurity. It tells the story of the oldest, most respected American hacking group of all time. Though until now, it has remained mostly anonymous. Its members invented the concept of hacktivism, released the top tool for testing password security, and created what was for years the best technique for controlling computers from afar. With its its origins in the earliest days of the Internet, the cult of the dead cow, I love that name, uh, is full of oddball characters, activists, artists, even future politicians. Many of these hackers have become top executives and advisors walking the corridors of power in Washington and Silicon Valley, including Mudge, Weld Pond, Death Veggie, and even former U.S. Congressman from Texas, Beto O'Rourke or as I would really love to refer to him, psychedelic warlord. To- <laughs> do
1: you think most of the constituents know that, Carolyn?
0: They do now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and today the group and its followers are battling electoral in- misinformation, making personal data safer, and battling to keep technology a force for good instead of for surveillance and oppression. Cult of the Dead Cow shows how governments, corporations, and criminals came to hold immense power over individuals and how we can fight back against them. Welcome, Joseph.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you very much for being here. And how are you, Eric?
1: I am well. I'm waiting to see how you kick this one off.
0: (laughs) This Well, so here's the thing with this book. Um, Joseph has some author's notes at the beginning of the book. And I'd like to, if this is okay with you, Joseph, I'd just like to read a couple of little parts from from them. Sure. So, it they really summed up the book for me. And to the beginning of your notes, you say, "Technology is deciding the fate of the world, and we are everywhere in its chains." As I read the first half of your book, those chains were really heavy. Like it it was it was depressing for me. I just thought, "Where what chance do we have as a society? To be honest, it, it felt really, um, like I said, depressing. So you, you end your, your notes with this, however. In a time of wider moral crisis in, te- in technology, this book is a rare message of hope and inspiration for tackling worse problems before it's too late. And I felt that the second half of the book. And even I feel like I've, I have some newfound heroes. I so. feel like
1: Joseph got to your soul, Carolyn, <laughs>
0: Honestly, like he,
1: almost like the Marine Corps, right? He broke you down and then he brought you right up at the he, ending.
0: He did. I'm telling you by the end of the book, I, Eric, wait until you hear some of these guys, like what they did, like these, these pimple faced teenagers, what they turned into. So I want to start with the first half of the book, though, and I want to ask you, Joseph, if you'll give um, just a summary of who and what the cult of the dead cow is.
2: Sure. So um, one of the reasons I picked the CDC to write about uh, is that I wanted to illustrate something that was positive um, and I wanted to sort of hold up an example of things that can work in a what is a pretty dark time. Um, and in addition to their accomplishments as a group and as individuals, they're handy for me as a narrative device because they go all the way back. <clears throat> they're they're still around, uh, unlike most of the hacking groups of the time. That's uh, thirty five years now. Yeah, um, nineteen eighty
1: four. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Five years after the first virus came out, Joseph. Yeah. Crazy.
2: So so not only so they kept they kept changing they kept evolving. It's like. Um, after the book came out and I, I dropped the bomb about Beto, um, I think it was, uh, I think it was Matt blaze said, Oh my God, Beto was in nerd skull and bones. So it was, <laughs> it was like this, you know, And skull and bones is this Yale secret society that like, you know, one or more bushes was in and, you know, they're like, you know, they're, right. they're weird. They have this great real estate in the middle of campus or whatever. And then like, they tap you on the shoulder and say like skull and bones in or out or whatever. And like, practically everything else is myth. You know, we don't even know what's true about them. And Cult of the Dead Cow was like that um, on, you know, way to the nerd end of the spectrum. Um, you know, it's a, it's a small group, um, but it was like self-selecting. Uh, they they kept choosing new members. And over time, folks would, you know, folks would retire, move on to other things, and new people would come in. And so it, it wasn't like a constant thing, which I think is really interesting. It's sort of like, it, it sort of, in some ways, mirrored the evolution of of hacker and security culture, and, so, and it sometimes kind of led that evolution. Um, there were times twenty years ago when they were like the apotheosis of, of hacker culture; they're like the standard bearers for um, for this, this new movement on like a cusp of, of really great world importance. But in the beginning, they were just a bunch of teenagers um, who ran bulletin boards, which were and,
0: and stole calling card numbers. <laughs>
2: Some came into their possession. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one of the things that's interesting that people today don't realize is that if you were on the net back in the day, unless your your dad or your mom worked at a university, you were you were a criminal um, because the the bulletin boards were frequently in another area code and long distance um, calls were super expensive and because the connections were slow in those days. You, you know, you're going to have a mammoth phone bill, um, which your parents are going to be really displeased about. So people did a variety of things. They used they traded stolen uh, calling card numbers, credit card numbers. Um, you know, they borrowed somebody else's machine remotely. Um, they did all these things and it made for really interesting development because like all well, these people who are now like CSOs and and, and CISOs, you know, were teenage criminals.
0: Well, and my favorite was that they would just hack the phone companies. Like that, that was the best part. And I loved their rules. So I I just want to read their rules. Number one, Eric, be known to an existing member, which I found this to be key, Joseph, in in your book and in other, um, in other groups, this being known to an existing member, like in real life. And then don't be boring. That was number two. And then my favorite one, is number three don't be an asshole and I mean like these rules they should really just apply across the board right
2: those are life rules good those life, are life rules.
0: rules for me yeah yeah
2: <laughs> yeah no I, I, I think that is important um, I mean so again the, the like the the nickel tour here of the group is their early bulletin board um, leaders and then they started running writing mostly funny sometimes obscene sometimes silly text files um, sort of randomly, they went in that direction because they didn't have really. They had pretty crappy modems, and so that's all that they could download and upload would be text files. Not even like you know pictures or 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 stolen software, which your games, which a lot of people were interested in of their age. Um, so they so they did these text files, and then they were sort of like sort of marketing savvy, and they figured out a way to like distribute them. They numbered all the files, so people wanted a complete kit, and they would send them off. To various other bulletin board operators, so they were first famous as like some of the earliest funny text files you would read when you stumbled onto the internet, um, and then because they were sort of well known and, and, and famous, um, they got to they got like a couple other shots at evolution when other most bulletin boards went away with the advent of of AOL uh, and uh, and Windows ninety five um, because. You didn't need bulletin boards. You could have have websites. Um, but the CDC survived because by that time they had some overlap with the loft, uh, these great Boston hackers um, uh, who famously testified before Congress in 98 that any of them could bring down the Internet. Um, and so they were much more technical people, and they had one of the first websites, and so they preserved the CDC files. So then when the media was trying to understand what is this Internet thing – you know, the CDC was already established as sort of like, you know, the cultural granddaddies who understand all this stuff. Um, And while most hackers were running away from the press, the CDC just loved playing with the press. So they got even sort of more attention, more famous. And then these people with very serious hacking stills wanted to join CDC, so then they became like a technical force and famously released BackOrifice and BO2K, which were these, these tools that allowed script kiddies to take over basically any Windows machine, and that forced Microsoft to get more serious about security. So that was like their, their, their main – Peak of fame was twenty years ago, and that's also when they brought out the idea of, of hacktivism, sort of like um, you know using security for uh, political cause, in particular service of human rights. But so I- the, knowing each other was in real life is super important. So one of the reasons that Anonymous, which was much bigger, you know, got sort of amorphous and confusing, and you know, didn't I think accomplish as much as they could have, is that they didn't all know and trust each other. They didn't come from Different backgrounds, but shared values, which is what made CDC very strong.
1: And you had to know each other in the physical world, correct? That's right. That's so right. that goes mm-hmm. back to trust again. You had to mm-hmm. b- know from a trust perspective who somebody was before you let them into the society.
0: That's yeah, right. And in fact, they, you know, the uh, the blonde. Um, what's, oh, the Hong Kong
2: blondes, so you're talking yes. about ox Blood roughing? Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes.
0: So I mean he probably made them up right
2: either, either 80 because, or hundred percent yes
0: yeah because nobody ever I guess talk about that a little bit and for our listeners so
2: so um, one of the things that sort of broke the CDC into more mainstream attention aside from like the, the tech community which already knew about them was um, was the the invention of this outfit called the Hong Kong blondes and to back up a bit, um the cdc you know got to be got to the state where they could actually force changes at a giant company like microsoft by their public antics and their politi- and their technical savvy and and their media savvy and then um, it was sort of like okay you know somebody in the book says it's like the dog that caught the car and instead of like you know giving up they're like okay well let's get in the car and drive it and see what we can do um what happened was that one of their their numbers suggested that they move in sort of a general political direction, not just a company, but like sort of like more um, more broadly political. And he sort of picked the the, the the perfect initial target, which was the Great Firewall of China, um, because there were some people in CDC who worked for the U.S. government. There's some people in CDC who hated the U.S. government, but nobody liked what China was doing with the Great Firewall and censorship. Um, so he, um, he sort of encouraged them to, to, uh, to plot ways in which hackers could help the people within China and there are a variety of things really, that could be done.
0: Really the birth of hacktivism, right? This yes, is, this is, this the is the beginning, beginning of, of hacktivism. Yep.
2: Um, and this is like 98, 99, um, and, um, in and 2000 and, uh, the thing that really got the mainstream media attention was this outfit called the Hong Kong Bonds? And the Hong Kong Bonds, as described uh, by members of the CDC, were a uh, bunch of freedom-loving, uh, democracy enthusiasts with tech savvy that the that the CDC was advising on how to um, avoid uh, censorship and avoid detection uh, within China. And it was like this great, very colorful story except that only one person had ever claimed to talk to any of them. And that was Oxblood Ruffin, who at that point, his, his real name wasn't out. Um, and, um, you know, the details and the the sort of the origin story of the, of the goop shifted over time. And like not to ruin the surprise, but, um, you know, Oxblood had convinced other people in the CDC that the Hong Kong blondes were real, but uh, they weren't.
0: <laughs> yeah. And in fact, did like press press releases or or articles were released, but the reporters never actually spoke. Right. To, so to them.
2: So. So I trace how that happened. And unfortunately, this is something that still happens today. Journalism being pretty imperfect um, and tech journalism, maybe more than most journalism. Um, the, the key thing was that there was a, a young reporter for Wired. Um, who you know heard the first description of the Hong Kong Blondes uh, when the CDC was speaking at uh, Hope, the Hackers on Planet Earth, in New York, and he got very excited and he was pestered, uh, Oxblood, for more details, and eventually Oxblood gave more details, and that story ran in Wired, um, and because Wired was really good by the standards of tech journalism, the mainstream press said, well, if Wired Saying this is true, then it it must be true because uh, Wired really did know more than most. And this is um, circa 2000 ish. That's right. So
1: the technique I mean, isn't the same as it is now. 20 years later, it's it's a lot <laughs> smaller. I mean, a lot, lot fewer sources. Right.
2: Right. Right. There very there were very few full, almost no full time cybersecurity reporters back then who who would have looked askance at this. Um, and then so so it, it echoed around a lot of the media. Uh, uh, Naomi um, Naomi what's her name um, the uh, big environmental journalist uh, Naomi Klein, I believe wrote about them for the Toronto Globe and Mail and the and the Hong Kong Bonds got on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Um, you know they, this is you know part of the movement of people, um, circumventing, you know, Chinese oppressive tech is the Hong Kong Bonds and the front page of the LA Times. It's not messing around. That's that's big press.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, one of the things the CDC said was that the greatest threat to security is the poor distribution of real information. Yes. And yet they used
2: the distribution so that, right, so of that was
0: false information.
2: So I talked to them a lot about this. Um, you know, this book is a process of years of, of work um, and, and developing sort of greater trust with these folks, but also verifying everything they told me very carefully, uh, which is why the there are so many footnotes. Um, they came to an evolution. So back at the time, you know, there was a, their pranksterism was a big part of it. It was part of the sort of like the hacker thing, um, and and pranking the media for a cause was something uh, was something that they were into. So they are one of the forefathers, foremothers of of the sort of the the fake news um, hustling that happens, uh, unfortunately now to to a great extent, including by those in power. So in retrospect, their thinking is. You know, if you're going to do a prank like that to draw attention to a serious problem, then it's OK. That's their 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 opinion. It's sort of one of them. Um, a couple of them actually cited the yes men who are these pranksters that um, managed to get on like the BBC uh, a number of times. One of their, their most famous stunts is they pretended to be um, Dow chemical representatives and said, we're going to give everybody in Bhopal. You know, we're going to give Bhopal billions of dollars to make up for the the chemical Uh, explosion there. And, you know, it wasn't true. And they hoodwinked the media, but it got people thinking about, you know, gee, did they ever actually, did Dow Chemical actually ever do anything to make up for this terrible thing that happened? Um, So they now feel like that's, that is different from a, a national government or a major political party spreading lies about, you know, the opposition. So, would would, you know, I think that's defensible, well, might not be. I personally am not a big fan of spreading lies to the media because I'm in the truth business, but I can understand where they're coming from.
0: Yeah. So you you mentioned um actually the critical infrastructure bill, like the first one, the presidential directive 63 where these guys testified before Congress under their their names. Can you talk about that a little bit and and why that was so significant?
2: So yeah, that was huge. Um, so uh, Dick Clark, um, who was the first White House cyber czar, um, uh, R- Richard Clark, uh, was trying to build up um, political momentum for like some sort of uh, a federal oversight role over uh, to help at least encourage best practices in industry. And to get more attention on security, and he was having a hard time because he was reading about all these hackers doing these amazing things, and then he would talk to the CEO of Oracle, the CEO of Cisco, CEO of Microsoft, and they're like, "Oh, it's no big deal. You know, this isn't really a problem." Um, and that didn't make sense to him, so he went to the FBI and said, "Are there hackers that you trust that I could talk to to figure out what is actually possible?" And um, he went up to to Boston and went to the loft, L-O-L-0-P-H-T, and uh, talked to them for a while. And he saw everything that they could do. And then he huddles with his guys later and said, and so like, I thought like only like a nation state could do all the stuff that these guys are doing. This is terrifying. And to sort of build support and awareness – Uh, rather than just have like people from the NSA and CIA come in and blather on about how everything was fine. He, he arranged to have them come testify uh, to Congress and they agreed to do it only under their hacker handles. So, I mean, the only other time this has happened, I think, is maybe like, you know, you know, organized crime informants, you know, testifying under an assumed name. So it's really incredible. There's this famous picture of the seven of Members of the loft at that time, with Mudge with the extremely long hair in the middle, looking like Jesus. And I've always thought of that picture as like the loft supper. Um uh So, <laughs>
0: nice,
2: so, nice. so this is ninety eight, and they testify that they can bring down the internet. And this inspired, like, hackers knew that this, was you know, really good hackers knew that everything was was built on sand. That like that the more complicated the software is, the more holes they are. That nothing, that it's Indefensible, and it's rapidly uh, getting more important. Um, but nobody, but the, the the American public didn't realize that. And so, watching these guys, like really talented hackers, telling Congress what's up, like inspired a lot of people to think that maybe change was coming, and that good things could happen. And that that specifically is why when the loft turned into at stake, this this sort of you know uh, venture backed. Uh, hacker security boutique, um, people like Alex Damos came and, and, and joined it, who didn't have like this sketchy background of the early hackers, but like, wow, these are the guys that, that told Congress what was up. I, I want to work for them.
0: Yeah, but Eric, did you catch the date? This was in 1998. Hey, Windows
2: 95
1: had already come out. People had computers (laughs) for at least a couple years.
0: Right, right. But I feel like (laughs) that same testimony is still taking place today. Oh, it absolutely
1: is. And I I don't know what's changed. That was my thought. Yeah. No, that was that was my exact thought. I I, I can't imagine 20 years ago what it was like explaining to Congress the world they live in, because we see it today, and it's still so foreign. To the Congress when they hear people testify.
2: Well, it's gotten better. So there are there are people in Congress with you know computer degrees. There are people with intelligence agency backgrounds. Um, It's not where it needs to be, but it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, the
1: the staffers have a lot more information also, which is where a lot of the movement happens. And I think society has recognized we've got you know, we, we have greater challenges. And I think we do have greater challenges now, right? Over, over the last, you know, 98 to 2000, let's call it 22 years, the problem has gotten significantly worse also, both in scale Absolutely. and complexity. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But that was part of, you know, the, the, the weight of the first half of the book to me was I just felt like, I don't know, that was 1998. And I feel like it's the same story, which also brings me to another dark part of of the CDC culture was Jake Applebaum and, and Julian Assange and, and several others that had the sexual har- harassment allegations brought against them. And I, what do you think, or do you think that those allegations um, hurt the credibility of these hacker groups?
2: Sure. Yes, they did. Um, I mean, the, the hacker movement, or really it's like even multiple movements, had the Me Too thing um, just as bad as, uh, I don't know, as Hollywood, as, as you know, uh, as bad as anybody. Um, it's been a, um, which is, you know, sad, but it's been a sort of a, um, a male-dominated field um, and for a very long time. Still is. And mm-hmm.
0: Still is. Big problem. And,
2: and unfortunately... There's this is it's not like a, um, it, it's unfortunate because it's it's a community that welcomes outsiders and uh, people who, and misfits, um, but within that, uh, which is good, uh, you want a place where those folks can belong and contribute, um, but unfortunately, some of the anti-establishment attitude means that really bad behavior gets. Gets tolerated. It's it's sort of um, against the culture to go to go to the cops and complain about something, or or to complain about you know these figures. There's also there is a problem with hero worship. I think Um, Mm -hmm. there's um, you know most great stuff is not done by lone shining individual. Most great stuff is is done by communities, Um, and I think I think Hackerdom has learned that, Um, but it's a work in progress. On the on the it's, it isn't it is, it is a, it's kind of like a known problem in like like the like the labor movement um, the, the uh, you know the Black Panthers like a lot of sort of anti-establishment outfits uh, over the decades there has been really really bad um, sex stuff near the top and it and you you know they put pressure on people who are victims and saying well if you bring down you know, uh, leader X, you're hurting the movement, and you know you're. If you go to the cops, then you know you're you're a snitch, um, and they know that. And 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 so um, transgressors have used that to their advantage, and unfortunately, that happened with uh, uh, with Jake Applebaum and and uh, and others.
0: We will pick up our conversation with Joe next week, although we're ending on the underbelly of the CDC. Next week, we get to my favorite part, the superheroes of CDC, who really might just save the world. Until next week, be kind to yourself, run your updates. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.